And welcome in, everyone, to this episode of Broadcaster Hour. This is Roger Hoover, joined on the far side of the screen by Kyle Crooks, and smack dab in the middle of the screen, we've got Timmy B., Tim Brando <laughs> of Fox Sports, who joins us. And Tim, first of all, good morning and welcome to Broadcaster Hour. Well, fellas, I'm flattered to be uh, among the, um, uh, the, the, the murderer's row of guests that you guys have had uh, in recent weeks, so... My pleasure to be here. Well, what have you been up to? It's been a crazy couple of months for everybody that's working in sports broadcasting, but for you, how has everything been uh, since the last game you called? Well, you know, um, I'm the dubious uh, response to a future sports Jeopardy question. Name the last guy that called a college basket in the 2020 season, not named Jim Nance, meaning, of course, we didn't get to the, the Final Four, and I would be the answer to that. There was no confetti coming down uh, from the top of Madison Square Garden when we were called at halftime of that Creighton-St. John's game. Uh, but I was close to the end, you know, of my year, my work year. I go really hard, really strong, uh, do almost 50 events per season for Fox in football and in basketball, a little bit of NFL at the end of the college season, and, of course, a ton of college basketball crossing over beginning in November. So I basically come home for laundry. You know, from from November on, and my season starts in late August. Uh, but this is the time of the year for me uh, when I recharge the battery. Uh, I have not done baseball since I did call Braves games in '96 with Ernie Johnson Sr. And you know, the, when I was at ESPN years ago, long before you guys were born, uh, I was doing games around the clock, around the calendar, working nonstop. And the same thing was true. When I was at Turner, I was doing the Jefferson Pilot SEC games, and I, I went in and did the Hawks, I did the Braves, and I did uh, the NBA and the NBA playoffs. And I, I actually did inside the NBA uh, before Ernie did. Um, they started that thing up using, I think, the CNN guys, uh, uh, Hickman and, and uh, Nick Charles, and then they turned it over to Turner to do it. During the playoffs, I just took up residence in, in – um, Buckhead and stayed there for like three and a half months working at two o'clock in the morning after the West Coast game ended and they called that inside the NBA and of course you know what that's become so uh, I don't do that anymore you know I after I started my radio show which lasted for almost 15 years I decided football and basketball college football and basketball the two that are really in my wheelhouse would be what I'd concentrate on and then I did my show and it was a personality driven show I did it right here in my, my, my study at Chateau Brando until they decided to start televising it. And then we moved it about 10 minutes away to a production house, a soundstage that they have here in my hometown. And we did it on TV for about three years. When that ended, I just decided, you know, uh, I'm 50. At that time, I would have been um, 59 years old. And I said, you know, I'm going to just start concentrating on what I love. And I'm at a time in my career when if I'm going to go hard and fast for seven months, eight months out of the year, I need to, you know, catch a breath and take the uh, summer, uh, the late spring and summer off. And it's paid dividends for me. I feel fresher. Um, I get to spend time with my grandkids, which matters a lot when you've been married 41 years and now you've got three grandchildren. So for me, I was just a game away from being done. You know, so I now I've missed the golf. I've missed playing golf uh, because I've got a wife that's got some pre-existing issues with her heart and diabetes. So I had to be careful with her and uh, young grandchildren. So I've um, I've not hit a club. I've not picked up a club and hit a ball yet. And uh, I'm jonesing for some golf. So other than that, it's business as usual for me this time of year. Well, you mentioned calling that final event before all of this kind of came down with the virus, St. John's, Creighton at the Garden. You play the first half. Everything essentially to that point had been canceled, and that's the that's the lone sporting event that's going on at that point. How surreal was that day for you from a broadcasting standpoint, um, just for you and your crew, how it all took place that day? Well, Kyle, we, we knew that the likelihood of us starting the game was a question mark. And even after we began, uh, we were somewhat skeptical. But then the game took off, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I've, I've oftentimes said this to, to young broadcasters. I've been in situations before where the environment where the live event is taking place 
becomes the bigger story than the actual game. And we all have to be cognizant of that uh, when it occurs, like the 2008 SEC tournament when we were on the air at the Georgia Dome and uh, in the middle of overtime, Mikhail Riley gets a shot flying uh, off of the floor. The iron is kind. And uh, we go to OT, and with now all of a sudden, you know, a few minutes into that overtime, uh, the building begins to shake. We look up, and we can see, I, can, I mean, I see and hear a tornado outside. And so that was surreal. Uh, the following day, we moved to Georgia Tech, and they have limited access for fans. And we started at noon because we had to finish the quarterfinal round. I didn't know until about 8 o'clock in the morning, and I didn't go to bed until 3 in the morning, where I was going to be doing this game from the next day. Um, so that was surreal, but nothing quite like this. That was because of a, uh, a weather situation in a certain part of the country. This was, you know, an incredible international pandemic that was taking over the United States, and we are the last game going. And... I was checking my Twitter feed during every commercial break in that first half. We were we were aware that they had taken the players off the floor in Greensboro, Indianapolis, Nashville. So I recall saying as we came on the air and Rob Stone threw it to us, um, something along the lines of, for now, we continue to play in the Big East because you just didn't know. And I knew the optics were bad. I, I knew that for, for – for, for those that were not as emotionally locked into their teams, the people at home were saying, what the hell are they doing? Why are they playing? And so you've got to be aware of that that point of view. And my tone of voice, I think, and the um, for now we're playing, I think uh, hopefully lent uh, a hint to the, to the viewers that we too were a little surprised that maybe we were playing basketball at the Garden that day. And you've called a lot of big games and, like we just said, a lot of surreal events. But for you, it started really early, didn't it? Around 14 years yeah. old, you got a chance to work with your father. What was it like being in a broadcast family? I don't know anything other than that. You know, I, I just thought that was the way it was supposed to be. Uh, my father was a pioneer, came in from World War II, was a communications guy on a boat in the Atlantic during World War II. And uh, he came back, and like a lot of guys post post-war decided that uh, broadcasting was the way he wanted to go he's also an entertainer my dad could sing he could uh he had a band uh what we called in the, the old days a floor show band that would take over uh sack air bases they'd play the airman's club or the nco clubs uh, around bases across the country and some internationally we played in Harmon, newfoundland we played in goose bay labrador when i was a kid so putting on a tuxedo with a little uh a bow tie and going out and, and getting on stage and singing and, and playing the drums with my dad was something that I, I did. I just grew up that way. So being thrust in front of people and being comfortable with, with, with talking and singing and entertaining was something that I did as, you know, as a six-year-old. And when he was home, he had three live television shows. In the early 60s, television was a lot like the Internet now. Uh, it was a big deal to have a TV. And if your dad was on TV, oh boy, that was huge. And growing up at a television station, he did, the band would play, and they had a show called the Hub Brando Show, which was sort of like our stage show every Sunday night on television. Uh, he had a sort of an amateur hour slash American Idol or voice with a show called Hub Brando Search for Talent, where local talent would come and compete uh, once a week, every week. And he would take some winners of that show on the road with the band from time to time. Uh, and he had a kiddie show, a little kiddie show on Saturday mornings called Tops for Toys, where kids would bring bottle tops from the Big Chief Bottling Company, which later became Knee High Orange Drink and whatnot. And they would bid for toys from Toy Fair, the uh, local Toy Fair store here in town. And... Uh, by the way, whatever toys didn't get bid on, I got to keep for at least a week or two at the house. It was a real nice perk. Uh, so anyway, that was the lifestyle we had. And then um, Dad, uh, like a lot of things, the business changed. Um, and um, not all of Dad's dreams, even though the name of the band was Hub Brando and the Dreamers, not all of Dad's dreams came true. And uh, he decided to uh, uh, move out to California. Uh, my mother and father separated. And... Uh, 
so he was suddenly gone out of my life when I was about 11 years old. And uh, that's an interesting time to lose your dad on a regular basis in your house. But we never lost contact via the phone. We were we had a strong, strong relationship. And he knew what I wanted to do. And by the way, even though I was on stage, you would have thought maybe I wanted to be the next um, Dean Martin or Frank Sinatra, you know, but I didn't. I always wanted to be a sportscaster. I was captivated by watching live sporting events and um, and just TV in general. Um uh, I thought the guys that thought on their feet were the guys doing the sports, and he knew that. And uh, the first time I got, could get a cassette recorder, which was about Christmas of 67, well, about the time Dad and Mom separated, and I got that for my, my Christmas present, I started taking my, my cassette recorder into my room, turning the sound down on the television set, and calling the NFL games or the college games. I had my sporting news, so I could always have the batting averages of, of the baseball players. So I called baseball too, and my my mom would uh, yell down the hall, "Would you please tone it down just a little, son?" You know that kind of thing. But I was hooked. I, I knew what I wanted to do, and um, Dad got involved with some um, guys that ho- owned some hotels, and he wanted to get closer to home or have a reason to come closer to home. He was doing some screenplay writing and also doing various uh, opportunities for him and the band to sing and play in, in places out west, including Vegas, uh, playing some small rooms there. But Dad invested in some hotels, and he had one in Monroe, Louisiana, and uh, uh, the, the Admiral Benbow, and uh, that got him closer to home. And uh, he, he, because he was well-known in this part of the country, they needed a. They needed somebody to do Neville High School football games, uh, which Neville was a huge uh, program in Northeast Louisiana. A lot of great players, coaches, legends, really, came from there, and they needed uh, a broadcaster. The, the, the owner of the radio station knew my dad, asked him if he'd help him out. He said, "Sure, as long as I get to pick the guy I want to have work with me." He, he had no idea he was going to bring his 14-year-old son. So nepotism was the key to my success. <laughs> but, you know, when the red light goes on, you got to get it done. And uh, the first game that I actually called was um, was uh, in September of 1971. And I, uh, I was not yet 15, so I was still 14, and I was in the ninth grade. And I, I literally, my father and I went to our principal of the middle school. At that time, junior high was 7, 8, 9, not 6, 7, 8. Went to my middle school and said, you know, if you'll, you'll let Tim off at noon on Fridays, uh, we're going to get him down to the Continental Trailways bus station, and he'll he'll be driven to uh, Monroe, and I'm, we're going to do football games. Would you mind? And so he was able to talk my principal into giving me an excused absence. That'll never happen today, right? That would <laughs> never happen today. Uh, and I went to Monroe every Friday and did, did the games, and uh, it was amazing. Uh, I, he would do the play-by-play in the first half, He'd allow me to get comfortable being the color analyst and uh, a setup guy, so to speak. And then at halftime, we'd flip uh, switches, and I'd become the play-by-play guy. So I got the exciting calls at the end of the game. So that's how we started. You know, old Hub and young Tim doing Neville High School games in 1971. And uh, I didn't stop doing it. Uh, He had another hotel in um, Longview, Texas, in East Texas. And the following year... I went there, and they needed someone to do the Pine Tree Pirates high school games, and that was in 73. So my junior and senior years of high school, um, I did um, I did the games, and I did them as the the, 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 the primary announcer. And I had a, another guy that was the analyst and did the stats for me. So uh, that was it. That's how I got it done. And, uh, you know, I, I just knew. Uh, when I was really young, I mean, seven, eight, nine years old, that I wanted to be the next Kurt Gowdy or the next Keith Jackson or the next Jack Buck or Ray Scott, you know, all those heroes really for me. And ultimately I got to meet them, you know, and, and get mentored by them. Kurt Gowdy was my mentor. And, um, that's another story, how I, how I met him and how he became, uh, so close to me. And we were breakfast mates at every final four from 1982 until the year he passed away. 
That's really remarkable. And when you talk about your dad, he's such a versatile guy, whether it's the entertainment or the broadcasting. And then you mentioned some of the great names in broadcasting that were so versatile. They could do not only play-by-play, but then your studio shows, talk shows. Yeah. you got to be proud that you have been able to really follow in their footsteps because in this business, you've done a little bit of everything. Yeah, thanks, Roger, for, for noticing that because that is a throwback to our generation, our era. And as versatile as, as some people have said, you know, my career has proven out to be, it's nothing like the generation that my father's uh, comes from. You know, we, we talk so often about uh, the World War II generation as the greatest generation. I, I believe from a broadcasting standpoint, that's also true. I think the greatest generation of broadcasters were the ones I grew up watching. And the reason for that is they had to, they had no book, they had no manual, you know, to work with. They were literally doing this on the fly. And they had to move from radio to television. That was the generation that moved from radio to television and had to understand the difference between doing radio or doing TV. And uh, that's a tough task. You'll hear, I'm sure, from everybody that critiques your work, uh, especially if it's television work. You know, we can do with a little less verbiage. You know, we need you to back off a little. Just about everyone will tell you that. Well, imagine if you're coming from radio and you didn't really know that much about TV and you're having to make that transition. Ray Scott was really the first guy that, that patented the less is more minimalist approach that I think a lot of guys follow today. Uh, Pat Summerall admitted openly because he was working with Ray because he was a former player at that time. He played for the Giants, and uh, he and Frank Gifford had both worked with um, with Ray Scott and Jack Buck. And Ray was the ultimate minimalist star. Dowler touchdown Green Bay. You know he he, he spoke in sentence fragments, not in sentences, which was perfect for TV. He didn't that he didn't need to know that they were in an eye formation. You could see that. He was the first guy from that generation, I think, to figure that one out. But so many others, Gowdy Jackson, I mentioned, uh, Jim Simpson, who I got to work with at ESPN, was the number two guy at NBC. I learned a ton from him. He was the signature voice, really, of ESPN when they opened in 1979. And uh, I got to work with him, which was, uh, which was a thrill. By the way, here's a little prop for you. Oh, okay, it's no big deal. Anyway, this is, uh, this is Jim Simpson. The late, great Jim Simpson, who was the first signature voice at ESPN. And uh, I'm introducing him to my daughter, Tiffany, who's now 37 years old. His picture was taken in 1985 at an LSU game. Jim and, and Vital were working. I just worked my first game with Dick earlier that year when I replaced Jim. And he had a very big, big, huge voice and sartorial splendor. I told him about you know, Mr. Gowdy and what he meant to me. And I, I got to bring him home to my house that night. And uh, we fed him a little uh, hot boudin and cold couche couche and jambalaya down there in Louisiana and Prairieville, just outside Baton Rouge. And it was such a thrill. He got on the floor, started playing puzzles with my, my daughter. And it was just, you know, so cool to have a legend like that in my house. Uh, and we talked about the good old days and what they went through. And as I said, there was no book on how to do this. So our generation, guys like um, Ernie Johnson Jr., uh, who had the good fortune of growing up with Ernie Johnson Sr. as his, as his dad, and I got to work with him on Braves game. Um, and you take a guy like, um, uh, gosh, they're, so, they're, they're a classic second-generation broadcasters out there. Kenny Albert, one of my dearest friends, you know, having Marv. As a dad, these guys, they were able to show us, you know, the way they were able to give us the path. Uh, it was the, there was no manual, but they gave us sort of a verbal manual on how to do it. Here's what you don't do. Here's what you do. Uh, and um, and I, I think that transformation from radio to TV was cool. And so guys like me and I mentioned um the other 60-somethings, I want to say Brad Nessler is right about my age. I may be about two or three months older than Brad, but not a lot older. We're sort of the last of that generation. Guys that started in radio, and you had to excel in radio before you got on TV. 
now you guys are coming out of school and boom, it's like, you know, you almost skip radio altogether unless you do minor league baseball, which, which I, I commented yesterday. Um, so many of the really great young guys I see coming up like a Joe Davis, like an Adam Amin, you know, they're out there doing, you know, the Montgomery biscuits or the Birmingham Barons or, you know, the Tidewater team or wherever they get, you know, that's, that's where you can hone your skills so that when you get that opportunity on TV, you're ready made for it. And I think also knowing how to use your voice as a tool for success uh, it comes a lot more if you've had a radio background. Uh, but I think, again, the transition means sometimes if you pop right on TV and you skipped radio, uh, it can be both a blessing and a curse. Because if when you're on the radio, you... <laughs> You're it. You've got to paint the picture. You've got to do everything. So if you can learn to harness some of the verbiage and yet hold on to the strengths that come from radio, then I think you're going to be extra special. And uh, I mentioned Joe Davis and Adam Amin. I think they're right now uh, of the early 30-somethings, the guys that are 31, 32, 33. I mean, there's there, you can't find two better guys uh, than those two guys right now. And then for you, we mentioned some of your high school experience. Uh, what can you tell us about your college experience and then the steps you started taking to grow your career in the early days? Well, I had um, I had been on the air for so long that by the time I, I got to college, uh, guys were trying to get the jobs I had, and I already had them. <laughs> so it was uh, – but I, I went to Northeast Louisiana University, now known as uh, UL Monroe, uh, on a speech and debate scholarship that I won uh, from winning some awards at speech festivals there. They were the only school that had in their speech, I was, you know, I was always the last guy. As you can imagine, uh, I did the last rebuttal in, in, for my debate team, and I could deliver one hell of an oratory. Uh, but I didn't necessarily uh, enjoy the, the research that went into it. <laughs> you know? Some people said you'd be great in a courtroom, and I said, yeah, but I, I don't want to go. I can't go that long. Um, I had been working uh, for four years before I went to Northeast and was actually doing, uh, in the summer of my senior year of high school in 1974, I was hired to be a disc jockey at the FM Rocker and uh, do some sports on KWKH with the great Jim Hawthorne, who later became the voice of the Tigers, he was doing centenary college games back then. He did Robert Parrish when he played there. And uh, I got to be his sidekick on some centenary games. Uh, I would actually come back from Monroe to go and, and, and work on some of those games with Jim. And uh, at the end of the summer of 74, I was hired at uh, KTAL-TV, the uh, NBC affiliate here. They needed an audio guy. And an audio guy in those days... They had film chain and videotape in those days. So a director needed a guy to work audio to hit every button or wherever the, 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 the source was for the, uh, the audio to come on the air, whether it was film chain, it would be P1 or P2 or VTR for videotape. And we were using a one-inch videotape in those days. And if you were that guy, if you were the audio guy, you also became the, quote, booth announcer. So you read all the PSAs. With the guy that said at the top of the hour, because nothing was on computers back in those days. Now it's all digitally run. But in those days, you literally had to flip a switch at the top of every hour and have a live announcer go, ATAL-TV, Texarkana, Shreveport. You know, so that was what I did. And uh, the sportscaster on weekends left about, I don't know, must have been the end of June of that year. And I had uh, two more months before I had to get to Monroe for school. And I started doing the weekend sports when I was 18 years old. So, man, you know, that was a lot to have going on in your life and your career. The opportunities were tremendous. And a lot of that came my way because of the awards that I'd won in high school. I, I tell people all the time, get your kids involved in speech and debate uh, because you, you, the power of persuasion comes from that. Uh, but the whole time I was in school, I was working. And I ultimately left school uh, before graduation so that I could pursue that. Uh, and I... You know, I love my school, but um, the time that I spent there, I was thinking about the money I was missing by not working. You know, and again, that, that would never happen today. You know, that would never happen today. So it was um, a cool time, 
but I would literally come on Fridays after school. I was taking 18 hours, uh, and I was doing 17 hours on MWF and one hour on Tuesday and Thursdays. <laughs> I would leave on a Friday after all my hours, come in, work the overnight shift at the FM Rocker, get off the air at about 6 in the morning, go home, crash for about five hours, then go to the television station, put together the sports cast for the 6 and 10. After the 10 o'clock news, look, you're you're 19 years old, so what do you do? It's 10.30, you go out, you party. So I would party until about uh, 1.30, then go up to the radio station and work again from 2 a.m. to 6, go back to the house, crash for about four <laughs> That's what I was doing. You know, when you're young, you know, yeah. you can do these things. So it was a it was a fun time. But I think uh, when I was young, I also had so much opportunity come my way so soon, Roger, that I did not understand or comprehend, you know, the serious nature of what it would take to really get to the, where I wanted to go. And that was to broadcast games. You know, being a rock jock is cool in, in the 70s. Go, go watch the movie FM. I sort of lived that movie, the, the Martin Mull movie that came out in 1976. Um, but you can get seduced by that, you know, and then all of a sudden you wake up one day in your mid-20s and what the hell have you really done? Not a lot. I wanted to pursue my dream of broadcasting games. Hawthorne helped me with that, do those centenary games and some scoreboard shows on what was a 50,000-watt radio station. And I was able to, after marrying, and I think that's what happened for me, you know, you guys are self-starters. Uh, and I really applaud that. For me, uh, maybe so much happened for me so young in my life, I was taking things for granted. And then when I got married, it hit me. Like, I got to take care of somebody else besides myself. And uh, I said, you know, for me to, to really get going in sports, I need to get to a sports town. So I started hitting, you know, between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, I started hitting the road, trying to get tapes out. And Baton Rouge came a calling, and they said, we need a guy to, to do radio, a, a, a jock shift in the afternoons, but we're switching to talk uh, radio in the near future. And I was like, whoa, this is perfect. So I went to Baton Rouge, did a midday show, uh, but got off the air at 5 o'clock, and I convinced the general manager to let me do a sports talk show uh, right after that, from 5 to 7. And... Uh, he, in those days, radio stations were owned by families. They were mom-and-pop operations. You know, there was no uh, clear channel. There was no cumulus. You know, it was, it was most of the stations were singularly owned. And uh, the guy that ran the station was just perfect for me. He was a lot like my dad in, in many ways. He, and he knew my father from years earlier. Bob Earl was his name. And he said, well, kid, uh, you think you could sell it? And I said, sure. I think I can sell it. And so, well, if you can sell it, then I'll, I'll build you a studio. You know, put three microphones in there so you can have guests come out. Get the coaches over here. And um, I was able to convince LSU coaches because there had never been a, a daily talk show uh, for sports in Baton Rouge in 1979. I was able to convince the head coaches of uh, football, basketball, wrestling. To, I basically went in and forced my relevancy on LSU's athletic department. And you had to drive back west over the I-10 bridge to get to Port Allen, where you hit the, uh, the bridge. And um, they would come out and do at least an hour or so with me. And I would have a great guest, either from Southern University or LSU. Uh, and then I would take calls for the bulk of that two hours. And, man, did it open doors for me in that community. Uh, so much so that by the time 1981 rolled around, Dale Brown was championing me for opportunities to, to call games. Uh, and Hawthorne, interestingly, had come down to Baton Rouge at that time and started working in basketball, even though the great John Ferguson was still doing football. Uh, but when John, uh, Bob Broadhead, the athletic director, uh, was hired from Miami, he had worked for the Dolphins, he had this idea with cable television to do a pay-per-view thing called Tiger Vision which was way ahead of its time. Uh, notion of a school having its own cable network, which is what they did. They put all the games, just like SEC Network, at volleyball. All the non-revenue producing sports were on it, and he would take football and basketball and do pay-per-view with it, the boxes that you had to get. He would do pay-per-view with that, and 
Then he'd take the pay-per-view shows and rerun football and basketball on Tiger Vision every day. And uh, being the voice of LSU on Tiger Vision was a real, I mean, that's how I developed the tapes to send out, to send out and, and get my opportunities to ultimately call games and all these conferences, the Raycom Jefferson pilots and the uh, other conference uh, syndicators that were out there. That's how I got noticed was through Tiger Vision. And then by 1985, obviously, the opportunity at ESPN came on. And that leads me to my next question. Getting to ESPN, how did that come about? You mentioned doing a game with Dickie V. That was the, the yeah. first game that you ever yeah. did. That had to be an incredible experience. But also working on SportsCenter, a lot of people don't know you were the original host of College Game Day. Yeah. Uh, what did you take away from your time at ESPN? Well, um, you got to remember now, there was no other sports outlet other than ABC, CBS, NBC in those days. There was no Fox television in 1979 when it was created. Uh, and if you lived in Tuscaloosa or you lived in Gainesville or you lived in Baton Rouge, you got ESPN right away. The only people that weren't getting ESPN were in major metropolitan areas where there was usually some sort of political fight over who was going to own, which cable company was going to come in. And it was um, it was a little bit like granting a gaming license to a casino you know it became a, a hot button topic in those met metropolitan areas i don't think espn was cleared in uh, manhattan until after i moved up there so it took a while for espn to get in major markets so but still they had 25 or so million homes basically all of college sports they were rerunning and had the early days of the ncaa tournament which i was a real basketball hound and so i'm watching all these games they would re-air the first and second rounds of the tournament. People your age don't realize this, but uh, you know the networks, NBC, when they had it from until 1981, they didn't air every game. I mean, you you you, you got a game maybe on Sat uh, on Thursday or Friday night after the local news. Uh, so ESPN went in and told the NCAA, who's producing all these games, we'll we'll air every one of them, and the games we don't air live. We'll put on tape delay and play them all through the night, which helped give them some credibility and legitimacy. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there in Baton Rouge doing those LSU games and, and, and doing Big 8 games later and some Memphis games and Metro Conference games. And I'm like, I could, I mean, I could be doing that. You know, I could be there. And uh, so I sent them the tape, and I didn't hear from them for a good maybe two years. Set the tapes in probably in 83, and in late 84, in December, I'll never forget it, the phone call came from a lovely lady that still remains a, a friend today. I think she's a, I think she's still an agent uh, for talent. Ellen Beckwith was her name. She worked for Scotty Connell. I got the call at my desk at Channel 9 at WAFD in Baton Rouge, and uh, the phone rings, and she says, had a deep, deep uh, northeastern sort of... Uh, Long Island accent, you know. I said, hello. She says, hello. I said, yes, this is Tim. Is this Mr. Brand? Is this Tim Brando? And I said, yes. Hello, I'm Alan Beckwith from ESPN. And I'm like, okay, hello, how are you? <laughs> she says, listen, uh, we've had your tape here for some time. And um, in in like 10 days, we've got, a, we've got an opening for a game between Duke and Virginia in Charlottesville. You think you can make yourself available? And I was like, this is that moment of impact when you have to be cool, fellas. You know, sometimes you can be a little giddy inside and then you have to say, all right, take a deep breath, right? And so she says that, are you available? And I went, well, let me check. <laughs> <laughs> let me check. And I see, and I'm looking. She says, I said, what's the date? She says, January 5th. So I looked, and yeah, I have an LSU-Mississippi State game on January 5th. And then I had to make a call. You know, in my head, I made a call. I'm like, I know Dale Brown and Bob Broadhead will be happy about this. They'll be okay with this. So I made the call in that moment, and I said, uh, Ms. Beckwith, uh, I am available. I'm free. I can do the game. <laughs> Okay, well, you're going to be working with Dick Vitale. Are you acquainted with Dick? And I was like, oh, yes, absolutely. I've watched him. Well, um, you know, he's a handful. Uh, how do you think that'll go? So now it's another call. You got another moment. 
that you have to answer the bell. Okay. And I said, Ms. Beckwith, this would be a great opportunity for me, no question about it. But rest assured, uh, as great a personality as Dick Vitale is, and I know he's a larger-than-life personality, uh, I've been at this a while. I've called a lot of games. I am the play-by-play -play man, and I will make it work. Rest assured, this will not be an issue. Well, because, you know, not everybody can work with Dick, and, and uh, especially young guys. I said, you don't have a I'm, I'm I am older than my years suggest. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, it was um, January 5th, 1985. I called Broadhead. I called Dale. Dale was such a champion for me. Uh, he's got to be in the top five most influential uh, guys in my life. He was like a surrogate dad for me. My dad uh, had just passed away about that time. And uh, he had seen some of my work that I'd done on USA Cable with the Metro Conference. And I'd gotten some games that were being put on cable TV out on, as I said, USA Network was carrying some basketball back in those days. So he's out in California. You can see my work. But when I lost my dad, uh, the folks at Channel 9 were great. They let me go out to be with him. He had cancer. I was with him for the last three or four weeks of his life. So um, when I got that game, I called Dale, and he just was ecstatic. He could not have been happier for me. And Bob Broadhead was the same thing. They said, Tim, do you have no idea? If you can launch your career from what we're doing here, man, we're going to be so proud and so happy for you. And um, they replaced me for that game with the guy that was uh, uh, the, the legendary broadcaster I was working with at Channel 9, Jay Townsend. Uh, God rest his soul. He, he replaced me on the game. That's how I got to go do it. So it was, um, it was a thrill. And going to do that game, I still have a copy of the, the checks, <laughs> the check they sent me, all $350 for that game <laughs> in 1985. Uh, but in those days, they could sell young guys on exposure mattering more than the check. The contract was about that thick. I could use it for a doorstop. It was that big. And uh, after the game, uh, during the game, Dick was like, this is unbelievable. You're pretty good. I enjoy this. And so I thought, uh, it was going well, and then after it was over, uh, the phone call started coming. Can you do boxing? Can you do PKA karate? Hell, I didn't even know what PKA karate was. Uh, can you do... I became sort of Mikey in the cereal commercial. You know, if it was a sport no one else wanted to do, give it to Brad, though. He'll do anything, you know, and that's what I did. I, I, I kind of made my career based on doing things that others probably were less comfortable doing and learning the glossary of the sport. It just so happened that year in 85, later that summer, the National Sports Festival was going to be held in Baton Rouge. It was a really big deal. It later became known as the U.S. Olympic Festival. You can Google it and find out. They, they called it America's Olympics. All of the governing bodies for all of the Olympic sports, uh, both for winter and for summer games, they held uh, a national event called the National Sports Festival. Later became, as I said, the U.S. Olympic Festival. And through that, I got to do so many, such a wide variety of sports. It was being held in Baton Rouge that year. We had all the ESPN people coming in. Jim Simpson was going to host it. Literally, the, it was a big deal from a programming standpoint for ESPN at the time. And so they're all there for two weeks. And we had people out to our house. We got to know a lot of people. And I think that was an ultimate entree for me as well. I was doing, uh, at that particular year, I did uh, judo, I did hockey. I was the first guy, I think, south of the Mason-Dixon line that ever called hockey. Just surviving calling hockey. First. <laughs> I didn't know, you know, I didn't know icing from offsides. You know, I had to get a guy. I, I used my spotter not to spot names, but to tell me what had happened because I didn't know. In other words, if the puck stops and there's a whistle, I'm lost. you got to tell me. So I put up on my board, I put up icing, offsides, high sticking, you know, because if there was a penalty, I didn't know what the penalty was. And in hockey, it's not like they stop play and give a signal. You know, they just skate to some circle and throw the puck down again, you know. And occasionally you might see a, a, one of the players, you know, skate to the penalty box. So I said to my, my guy, I said, look, I don't, he says, well, on occasion, I might not know if it's icing or, I said, I don't care. You point and you, you point emphatically because as a broadcaster, you want to sound like, you know, what the hell you're talking about. It was a, it was a one camera shoot 
and it was only supposed to be on for like two or three minutes at a time. As it turned out, the gymnastics venue uh, satellite blew up, and they had to open the show with me doing one-camera hockey for like five minutes. I've never been so happy to say goodbye. <laughs> I'm off the air than I was that night. <laughs> I'll never forget talking to Mr. Simpson, talking to Jim Simpson about it afterwards, about having to do it. He says, Tim, have you ever, have you ever done hockey? I said, no. I said, I'm thinking this is a test as to whether the, the kid can, you know, has the chops to pull it off. And he said, well, I can tell you in Grenoble, I was supposed to be doing the luge. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the Americans had a great chance to win, so they put Gowdy on that. Then I had to go do hockey. It was Yugoslavia against Czechoslovakia. And I'm like, Yugoslavia against Czechoslovakia. I said, had you ever done hockey? He said, uh, as it happens, no, I'd never done hockey. But I was good with the names, and we had a good analyst, and that helped me get through it. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. I was, uh, so you hear these stories from other guys that were legends. And it makes you feel like, okay, I'm on the right path. Uh, this is gonna, this is gonna work out. Yeah, that hockey story sounds a lot like me calling soccer on the radio solo for the first time. It was <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of what was that yeah, whistle it's for? A it's a <laughs> me doing gymnastics as well on TV. It's a you know, make sure you say these things. You know, and and and, and I tell young people uh, when you're doing these bizarre sports, these obscure sports, the first thing you have to do is go to the head of the national governing body for the sport and basically get a glossary because every sport has its own glossary all right for, as a, as a uh, great example would be uh, team handball which i've had the opportunity to do soccer and hockey all right you've got a goalkeeper you have a goaltender and you have a goal now if you screw up and say keeper when it should be goalie or tender when it should be keeper you're screwed you've lost all credibility with those viewers and you know what not as many people watch those sports but the ones that do care i mean they care big time and they want you to care as well so those are great tests for young broadcasters as they're making their way up tim biggest principles for you that are most important in in tv play-by-play -play. you talked about before not uh talking too much when you're on television you know when I was first doing TV, radio guy to TV, you tend to describe things a little bit more than are necessary because you can you can see what's going on. Just kind of yeah. let it breathe for you. What are some of the things that you still carry to this day that are the biggest principles in TV play by play? First and foremost, preparation. There is no substitute for preparation. Um, and everyone has a different way of doing it. Talked a little earlier about Joe and Adam and some of the other younger guys that are coming up. And they're all very, very good. But everyone's got a different way of preparing themselves. And I think a lot of times it's generational. For me, as a kid, uh, Roger, you'll get a kick out of this. Uh, Robbie Robertson's a dear friend of mine in, in Alabama, in Birmingham, uh, from um, uh, the Colonnade Group. And uh, his son, Gray, I met when he was, gosh, middle school, maybe. <laughs> I went over, we, I came over to speak after the SEC championship game. And Robbie was so proud of Gray because he was really so into sports. He knew what he wanted to do. And so he took me into his room and he had a, uh, a, a folder with all of the batting averages of all the players, you know, in certain leagues and how he was keeping up with the stats. Like, well, as a kid, you know, that loved sports, I was keeping up. We had a double A farm club in Shreveport at the time, the Shreveport Braves which what made it so cool for me to do Braves games was because I grew up going to Shreveport Braves games while I was playing American Legion ball and high school baseball. So I go into Gray's room and I see this and I'm looking at it. I'm like, wow, this is like scary. So it's like back to the future uh, because I did the same thing as a kid. Well, the preparation part, like I was preparing to do my cassette recordings. Like I would prepare batting averages for the guys on the teams that were going to be on TV we got a lot of Houston Astros games in those days uh, on Saturdays. Lowell Pass, Gene Elston, and the late, great Harry Callis, whose son, I believe, does now Astros games. They were doing the game. And so I would prepare that way. So getting that information and color coding it, and I did it with Mark's a lot, you know, in those days, that was part of the prep for me. That's the fun of the job. 
So I pretty much do the same thing now. I get a, a, a great deal of my preparation done other ways with additional help today from other resources, but I still have to do my boards my way. I can take some of their information, but I've got to construct it on cardboard or on a really big, and I do mean big, board. For And the older I get, the bigger the board gets. <laughs> it's so big, I can't put it in an overhead bin. I need help to get it on a plane. Okay, it's that big. I have a huge portfolio uh, case. People think I'm an architect. Okay, when I get on, or you know, I'm, I'm holding some sort of Picasso painting when I get on the plane. <laughs> but um, this is uh, an example. This is the uh, Washington. This is the Apple Cup game. Washington State, Washington, the final weekend of the college football season. And you can see there. That's the. Uh, Washington State offense against the Washington defense. And flip it over, and it's just the opposite. And some of that information you can see is typed, and it may have come from other resources, but most of it is handwritten. And the anecdotal material looks like chicken scratch to you, okay? But it matters to me, and I know I wrote it. And if I wrote it down... I know it's true. I know I got it directly from the coach. I get so caught up in writing this and having fun filling it out. It really is fun. I mean, I think of my preparation time as fun time. But by the time the game starts, because I've written it myself, and this is purely generational, uh, a lot of guys today can go on their computers and their laptops, dial stuff up, call the game right from there. I mean, a lot of them, a lot of great ones do. Not me. If I don't write it down, I don't commit it to memory. And I dare say most of this material never makes air, okay? But because it's there, because I wrote it down, because I, it's, it's here, being armed with that kind of information, knowing that you know as much as you do about these two teams, gives you the confidence to speak with authority. And I think that's the, the real key is – commanding the audience into believing that you know more than you're telling. And that's the real key, is being armed with the preparation, but at the same time, knowing judgmentally what to use, what not to use in a given moment. So those are two factors for me that are absolutes, preparation and judgment. Preparation, no substitute for it. But then the judgment of knowing what hits the editing room floor, because if you just because you do this homework doesn't mean America needs to hear it. They only need to hear it when the time is right or when it's comfortable. If there's not a dead ball situation story, I want to tell about how this Samoan kid grew up and how he was uh, commandeered by the Oregon offensive line coach. I don't people don't want to hear that when we're in the middle of a drive 50 yards and the ball's at the 18 yard line, they're concerned about their team getting in uh, launching into some sort of human interest story. When the ball's in the red zone is not always the thing to do. So you got to be very, very concerned about editing yourself through having great judgment. And frankly, it takes a while for a lot of people uh, to, to figure that out. And um, you know, I, I feel like people say to me all the time, Tim, you sound so vibrant, so energetic and enthusiastic. And, and the reason for that is I'm finally doing now what I always wanted to do, just games. You know, for years I had uh, other things going on. Uh, the studio show was great. Uh, you know, I never really touched on SportsCenter. Uh, it taught me how to write, you know, for television, which was wonderful. College game day, I really didn't touch on it either, but it was uh, certainly the first visible opportunity I had to become uh, comfortable with the audience, but I was always dreaming of calling the game. It was ne I never fully appreciated uh, what I did in the studio uh, because I always yearned to be someplace else. And if I and if I have one regret, it's it's uh, it's likely that I did not take the time to be as grateful for the opportunities I had in the studio. Because I think it made me a better broadcaster. Uh, I understood how to speak while a producer was talking to me on a 10 count. 
because when you're in a studio, it's rat-a-tat-tat. It's Evelyn Woods speed reading, go, 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 go. Uh, a football game is completely different. It's more comfortable. You've got, you're describing the game, and it's up to you to filter in big-picture uh, information uh, if you feel it, it's necessary. In studio, it's, um, you know, it's, it's quick. It goes by fast. And it's an art form. And I applaud those that have done it and done it well and enjoy it. Um, I happen to be good at it, and I got a lot of visibility from it and maybe some popularity from it as well to help me with my TV career for the long haul. But games were where I always wanted to be. And now I feel like I'm catching up, really, uh, because at Fox, that's all I've done is games. And I'm starting my seventh year doing that. Up until this time, fellas, I, I always felt that I was missing out, that I, I hadn't done as much as I needed to be doing. Did a lot of college basketball, yes. And I'd done my baseball. I'd done the obscure sports. I'd done some other things. But uh, people ask me all the time, well, Tim, you know, those years at CBS were great. And they were. And listening to Burn every Saturday was magnificent. Um, and listening to a lot of other young guys coming up at ESPN. Ron Franklin was a legendary play-by-play -play guy, and I got to listen to him a ton when I was in the studio uh, at ESPN. But, um, you know, honestly, it, in that situation at that particular time, um, my my body and my mind were, were in the same place when I was doing the show, when the light was on. But when the light went off, I was too busy concerning myself with what I wanted to do later and not appreciating what I was doing in the here and now. So I think that would be my one regret. Um, but man, I'm living the life of Riley now because uh, Fox has allowed me to reinvent myself. And I, I think a whole generation now, your generation, knows me more as a play-by-play -play guy because that's what I've been doing for the last handful of years. And that's it. Uh, the time spent at Sports Center. And the time spent in the studio at CBS helped get me to where I am. Uh, and I have to value that, appreciate that more, and I think I do. What What is that preparation process before you ever get to a city like Tim? How much are you communicating with your analyst, with your producer, just exchanging emails, ideas on graphics, knowing where you want to go with the game before you ever step foot into a city? You know, uh, I've been really blessed in that i've never worked with anyone that wasn't also a dear friend uh i know you probably hear that a lot from people and it sounds almost cliche but it's true for me i've um and what we do like i showed the football this is basketball okay here here's your orange i gotta do syracuse orange my agent is a syracuse guy so i gotta <laughs> do that um this is what a basketball board looks like um uh, the, um, you know, I tell people it's not how much time do you put in? I really never put myself on a clock. I live this life. You know, this isn't really a career. It's a lifestyle. You know, being a, a sportscaster, to be paid to call games, I mean, how much fun is that? So, honestly, the challenge I have is to make sure that I'm also a good dad, a good husband, and get away from it a little bit so that it doesn't consume me. Our business can consume and seduce people and honestly can drive you a little bit batty uh, if you're not getting where you want to go as fast as you want to go. Everybody's in a hurry to get where they want to go. But during the course of the week, as we're preparing for a game to answer your question, like I talked to Spencer if not every day, every two or three days. We're that close. My daughter named her first son Spencer. Okay? We're buds. We've been together since 1999. He replaced Holtz and Craig James in the studio at CBS. And this year will be our 21st year together. In the last 22, we've only been not together for one year. I was at, um, I left CBS in 13, went to Fox beginning in 14. He finished out his contract at CBS, and it just so happened that uh, uh, Charles Davis got moved to the NFL uh, away from Gus Johnson. Joel Klatt, whom I had been working with, moved up to work with Gus, and I needed a guy. And Fox was looking for one, and they 
35 years plus at the national level, I've never had executives ask me my opinion, but they did. They said, Tim, do you have, do you know of anyone? I said, well, I just so happen to know <laughs> that my buddy is uh, in the last year of his contract. And lo and behold, they hired Spencer. You know, I'm forever grateful that they did that. And uh, he'll start his sixth year at Fox when I'm starting my seventh. And it'll be our 21st year on the air together, studio and and play-by-play. Play. And, you know, those years at CBS, that was before the NFL Network was born, so they had more regional games. We did four NFL games uh, a year while we were we would double up and do a, an NFL game on Sunday after we did the studio on Saturday. A lot of times the games had to be on the East Coast, you know, either Buffalo, Cincinnati, Cleveland, something like that to get the games in because we were on the air till you know, 8 o'clock at night Eastern time on Saturdays. So... You know, we talk about games all the time. And the basketball work, because we're doing three or four games a week sometimes, you fly in like gypsies from all across the country. <laughs> one week, one game it might be Jimmy Jackson. The next game it might be Raftery. The next game it may be Nick Baugh or, um, gosh, you know, Lynn Elmore, whoever it might be. And we've been together so long. Uh, I've worked with these guys for such a long period of time that it's a given that we've done our individual preparation and that the producers know what they're doing. Those shoot-arounds where you go and see the coaches, talk to the coaches and players, that helps us fashion, to answer your question more specifically, what graphics we really want to tell a story with. You know, graphics are one thing, but somebody that goes to the effort of putting together a, a paint box, as we like to call it in the business, of this story, this story, you know, a uh, Cradle of coaches, you know, this coach at Xavier is yet another assistant coach that became a great head coach who took his team deep into the tournament and then ultimately got another job, okay? Uh, going all the way to Bobby Stack, maybe, at, at Xavier, uh, and, and so many other great coaches that came after him, including Sean Miller and, and then Chris Mack, and from Chris Mack, you know, to where they are now. It's those kinds of preps by the producer talking with us before the game helps set us up for what we want to do the last thing anyone wants from its broadcast unit is to see something pop up on a, on a screen that surprises the announcers the announcers need to see every graphic before a show starts so you talk about it you get there a couple of hours before the game and then you go over those those graphics and those full screen paint boxes and you if you see an error whether it's a uh, spelling error or maybe a date is incorrect, which could happen. You know, the broadcast associate's got a lot on his table or her table. They really work hard. They they do a lot of grunt work for the producers. And sometimes they make, make a, a mistake. There could be a typo. You know, that's you rehearse that. You go over that so that that mistake doesn't come out on the air. The last thing you want, and, and young broadcasters need to know this when they come from radio to TV, when they put a graphic up, they don't want you to just repeat it. They want you to take that graphic and turn it into a story. Uh, tell me something. You know, the graphic spawns a thought. What is that thought? Then take that thought and run with it. Okay. That way you're telling the viewer something he or she didn't already know. I, I think that's the great uh, lesson for all broadcasters is that People always get annoyed by this or that that we do. We talk too much, we're allegedly biased, or whatever the hell is, you know, they're saying at a given time. But the really good viewer, view, the, one, the one that you value, you want them to say, God, you know, I didn't know that. Wow, that, he, he just said something that I had, you know, I, that triggered a thought. If you can leave, leave the viewer thinking that, then you've done your job. Tim, this hour has really flown by, so I'll get you out on this, and we certainly appreciate your time, and you're talking to us from Chateau Brando, and you touched on this a little <laughs> bit in your last answer, too, but uh, I'm getting married uh, coming up this fall. We're still trying to get Kyle to go on dates, but how have you... <laughs> how have still you, trying. Still trying. It's very hard. Um, Don't be consumed by the job, Kyle. Right. You know, it could be a lonely... You know what? 
It's true. Roger uh, tells me that. Yeah, that's right. That's leading me into how have you been able through the years, through all the different stops, all the travel you have, how do you balance the family time with your career and what's made it successful for you? Well, you know, all those tours we were talking about uh, from high school into uh, the, the time spent in college and then the jobs that came from that, uh, I did manage to get really, really lucky and find a rock in my life and my wife, Terry. We've been married. 41 years. Uh, I could probably count on one hand, not just in broadcasting, but in my life, people that are my age that I know that have been married to the same woman for over 40 years. That is, you know, it doesn't happen very often. So I've been very fortunate that way. Um, the thing that the thing that we've done is we've turned it into a team thing. You know, uh, from the moment that little girl uh Tiffany that I was introducing to Jim Simpson back in the day when she got to about that age, I'd go to the airport and she had just learned how to say the word why. You know, I got to leave. Daddy's got to leave. Why? Why? And I'd say, well, you know that game we went to the other night? Well, I've got another one to do and this time it's not in Baton Rouge. Why? (laughs) Uh, But if you turned it into hey, this is what dad does. And my wife was great about that. She put my daughters right in front of the television set, see daddy, that's what daddy's doing. And then all of a sudden they would be proud. You know, they'd be proud of their father. See, my dad's on TV. And I'll never forget on, on uh, uh, in the second grade, you know, they have uh, career day. It's always a second grade kind of thing. You know, if you're Catholic, you, uh, you get uh, Holy Communion and you have career day. That, that, that year, usually. So uh, it, it, at each career day, my daughters, Tiffany and Tara, introduced their father by saying, and this was usually after the doctor or the policeman or the fireman, you know, people saving lives. And I would come on and they would say, one thing about my father is he gets to wear makeup and no one laughs at him. <laughs> 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 I was like, you know, as long as they, I mean, that's just perfect. They figured this stuff out. And so even to this day, uh, and you'll see from time to time, my daughter Tiffany handles a lot of my PR. She does a lot of my social media. Uh, that's what she did at LSU. That's what she was uh, majoring in there and, and did well in. And my social media, I think, is, is important at this stage, particularly at my age, to be involved. And I try to be. And I use it to help younger broadcasters like you as well and promote uh, our business, our craft, and, and hopefully try to give back. But um, that, that message of making it a team thing, you know, a family team thing, engaging them, you got to follow that up, you know. And I would take them on trips. When I was in New York and I was working at CBS, uh, Thanksgiving week, we'd take off on Tuesday, stay a few extra days, go to the Macy's Day Parade, catch a couple of Broadway musicals, and it was cool to go to New York you know, every year for them as a family. Uh, just, and, and my, my, my wife had her birthday uh, a couple of um, years ago, and we were doing an Oklahoma game. And the whole family, uh, with my new sons-in-laws and, and all of us, we drove up. It's about a seven-hour drive, maybe. Instead of taking a plane, we took, we got the big, you know, I got the uh, Brando Chevy van, the huge conversion van. We piled in it. And we all went to Norma together, and it was her birthday, and Spencer, because he had connections, got her in a suite, and it was Terry's birthday. She goes in with the girls and, the, and their babies. I mean, we got grandbabies now, so there's two grandbabies, in the, and, and when they go in the suite, they're all singing happy birthday to Terry. She doesn't know any of these people. You know, Barry Switzer's coming in. <laughs> the Boz comes in. They're all taking pictures. Jim Ross, the great wrestling broadcaster, he comes in, and they gave, They all had gifts for her. I mean, she she walked out of there with, and that's part of being uh, in the team, that people know it's not just you, uh, it's your family too. And uh, I love seeing that. And uh, it starts it starts at home. And I I would, uh, out of guilt, I think, on every road trip, I would, I would come home with some sort of stuffed animal uh, that, or, or some nugget, some, something some artifact from where i visited i'll never forget i went up to oregon i went up to portland to do a game and uh baby was young and i brought i brought back a a, 
I brought back this stuffed beaver, you know, from Portland, Oregon. I was doing a game in Oregon State. And my wife's like, you got to stop. You got to stop this. And I'm like, what? She says, well, first of all, she, she's got way too much, too many of these. You know, if I did a game in Oregon, I brought a duck. If I did a game, so somewhere signifying where I've been, hey, and let's look on the on the uh, map or get the globe out. See, that's where daddy was. And she says, you know, honey, A, you're spending too much money. B, they're spoiled as hell. And we're running out of room for these. You know, we're not going to have enough boxes when we move for these damn stuffed animals <laughs> that you're bringing. But that was always my... Um, my modus operandi was to engage my family in what we were doing. And, and honestly, uh, they've kept me sane. You know, the business, uh, there are so many times in our business when we hit a career fork in the road. And I've had three of them, noteworthy, three of them. When I left ESPN, it was considered a risk. It worked out. I went to Turner. I got to do a World Series. I got to broadcast Braves games. I got to work with Ernie Johnson Sr., Got to do the NBA, which I had not done. Um, and without going to Turner for those few years, I wouldn't have gotten the CBS game. And the SEC early window games with Jefferson Pilot, I was doing at the same time. Uh, the future executive producer of, of CBS was uh, working for the uh, uh, organizing committee at the Olympics in 96. You couldn't turn on a TV in Atlanta in 1996 and not see me. So that helped me get the job at CBS. I got my first NCAA tournament that way. Each stop uh, helped me get the next stop, the next location. And uh, But there were scary moments. There were moments where even I wasn't sure. You know, when I abruptly left CBS, I had about an eight or nine month period where I did not know where I was going to land. Most people thought it would be at the SEC network or back at ESPN with you. And I... At that stage of my career, I thought, you know what? Uh, Fox was my destination. That's where I wanted to be and where I hoped and prayed I'd be. And uh, it, it ultimately worked out. And now I'm doing exactly what I want with my best friend and in basketball, my best friends. And uh, I'm, I'm just a very blessed man. But if I hadn't made some critical calls, critical decisions at different times, uh, my career could have gone the other way. And I made some mistakes along the way. And that's, fellas, it's never the other. Don't ever get caught in. I didn't get this because of that. There was some other reason that you, if you don't get a job, it's, you know, there's a path that's there for you. The path doesn't include this. You're not going to win every opportunity. You're not going to get every job. Don't get seduced and get caught into the, the blame game of why this or that happened. Be happy for what you have and continue to work on your judgment and work on, you know, having that, um, that presence of mind, that understanding of why things are or aren't going your way at a given time. And, um, there are times when I think that we can, we can get to a point where we get, um, maybe a little bit bitter. And I've talked to a lot of great broadcasters at the end of their careers and they, they never left. Not, most of them never leave happily. Uh, and that's a shame. I, I've always said I want to leave feeling like I, I hit my stride when I got to the finish line. That's my goal right now is to keep doing this for as long as I can and to be at my best. I still think all my best shows are still in front of me, not behind me, still in front of me. Because if you if you start thinking in terms of, well, I've arrived, I'm here, I'm I'm, I'm the broadcaster I always dreamed of being. That's when you're in trouble because you can always do better. You're only as good as your last show, and your career will always be measured on your last show. So those are things to keep in mind as you move forward. Well, Tim, we really look forward to the next broadcast you have coming up uh, hopefully this fall with some college football and college basketball right after that. But we have certainly enjoyed our time with you over this past hour plus. And thank you for your time and your insights. It's been a blast. Thank you so much. Well, you you, you guys are great. I love uh, I love speaking to gentlemen. Like, understand that you, you have a friend. And if you ever need me, um, I'm here for you. I mean that. Well, we Thank certainly you, Tim. appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right, that was the great Tim Brandell. We'll be back next week with another episode of Broadcaster Hour. Thanks for watching, everyone.